According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again. We are in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and we are ready now to move on to verses 7 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. We covered uh, the final details of verses uh, 1 through 6 on Wednesday evening as we talked about uh, Paul and his qualifications uh, as a Pharisee and everything that he could boast about as far as his earthly credentials are concerned. And uh, when we get to verse 7, we find out that he's going to throw them all away. He's going to take everything that uh, could have been a credit for boasting, anything that could have been an object of, uh, of pride, and he's tossing it uh, out the window or throwing it in the trash or literally flushing it down the toilet that uh, he counts it all but, uh, but uh, scubalon for the sake of, uh, of gaining Christ. And we'll be talking about some of the vocabulary here in this paragraph. Verse 7 of Philippians 3 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we'll be dealing with all of these principles here this morning. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Uh, Very important that we quiet our hearts, that we settle uh, the distractions aside, that we're in fellowship. If there's any sin that needs to be confessed, confess that before the Lord and be in fellowship for the study of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We give you the praise and glory, Father, for this day. It is a grace provision, Father. It is a reminder of your faithfulness that we have this blessing to assemble together. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to teach us the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let me uh, run through the outline. I like to do this each time or every so often as we uh, remind ourselves of where we are. What is the big picture on chapter 3? Since we've wrapped up the first portion, we're moving on now to the second portion of this chapter. Really, chapter 3 begins the meat of the book. That uh, it, Paul's main address to the Philippians starts here. It's uh, chapter 3, 1 through chapter 4, 9 is really the meat of what we think of as the book of Philippians. And so with all the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy now exhort the Philippians to joyfully keep on pressing onward and upward. And the the thrust of chapter 3 and 4 is onward and upward, that we are forgetting what lies behind and we're reaching forward, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we have our attention focused on the things above, not the things that are on earth. And so quite a bit here is going to have an onward and upward emphasis as we uh, work our way through the rest of chapter 3 and uh, the first part of chapter 4. Remember, Timothy is a co-author. It's Paul and Timothy to the uh, believers in Philippi. And so this is the exhortation. Rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. And so he doesn't mind repeating himself. He doesn't mind uh, the repetition. He doesn't mind especially something as important as rejoicing. Again and again and again, we're going to have rejoicing throughout chapters 3 and 4. So verses 1 through 6, the main address begins with rejoice and beware. It stresses the spiritual reality of our sign and our seal. That is that we are the circumcision as in contrast with the Jewish people. The dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision that are listed there in verse 2. Moving on now, after summarizing his impressive credentials, Paul recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement. And you might imagine, I mean, just imagine you've got all these impressive credentials. You've got, uh, you know, uh, an undergrad degree and a master's and a doctorate. You've got a PhD from a very prestigious Ivy League institution. And uh, you've even done postdoctorate work in some respects. And you've got all these qualifications. And then you say, you know what? Get rid of it. None of it counts. None of it matters. And that's what Paul says here when he's talking about the impressive credentials that he has. And then he counts them but loss. 
and he recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement, see? And so this is, I've got to be very careful with this because if I get it wrong, my wife will point it out to me. I married a CPA, and so she knows about profit and loss statements, and she knows about uh, balance sheets, and, and I was blending the two things and thought they were all the same, and they're different, all right? So now I'm going to be very clear on uh, the profit and loss statements. And when you're contrasting your income with your expenses, that's your profit and loss statement. When you're contrasting your assets and your liabilities, then that's your balance sheet, all right? Entirely different fields of, of accounting or different activities there within accounting. So I'm clear on it. You're clear on it. We should all be good now moving forward. But Paul, uh, he takes everything that would be an asset, everything that would be to his credit, and he recategorizes it. And he says it's a loss. He, cl- he categorizes it as a loss in comparison with knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so that's where we are this morning. We're going to begin the profit and loss statement in verses 7 through 12. When we get through with that, then we will uh, press on the upward way, Philippians 3, 13 through 16. The humble attitude equips us all to keep pressing on the upward way. We don't consider ourselves as having laid hold of it yet, but we reach forward. And I love the song, uh, Higher higher Ground, that we have in our hymnals, uh, because we are. It says, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. And that's what we're all doing if we are forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Finally, the chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly-minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. That's verses 17 through 21. And so these are the four segments of chapter 3. And I can kind of keep that in mind as we work our way through because today we're starting verses 7 through 12. We're starting the profit and loss statement. So um, as we look at it here, uh, we already read 7 and 8. Actually, I've read half of 8. Again, whatever things were gained to me were gained in the past, back then, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have, uh, in a perfect tense, uh, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So uh, past things were gained, past things are now categorized as loss, and and Paul's moving forward. That's uh, the emphasis there. We'll deal with that. More than that, though, he doesn't just stop with that. More than that, I presently count. Now, this is present tense. In verse 7 is past tense, and verse 8 now is present tense, moving forward, and he continues to count, continues to count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And, and really, there's principles of economics that we have to look at with respect to these verses. Not only do we have the accounting terminology, but we also have uh, profit uh, and loss terminology. We've got uh, we've got value in sense of what is surpassing value, right? And, and why is value so subjective? And why do we have different standards for what we value? And men and, William, uh, men and women will have differences in, in what they value as far as their esteem and, uh, and things there. So we'll talk about that as well. Surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Now rubbish is the PG term. Uh, it's not rubbish, all right? And we'll talk about that. It is vulgar. It is, it is, um, it is uh, excrement, all right? It is, uh, it, and that's what Paul counts it. He considers it to be just, uh, you know, excrement. For the, and, and it's not even it's not even the medical term. It's a very vulgar expression for uh, as as we have today, uh, vulgar language to express bodily waste. And that's what he uses, and that gets the point across, and it drives it home. And you can't forget it if a pastor uses a word like that on a Sunday morning. All right, and there it is sitting there in our Bible. I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is so much bigger than just being saved. We'll talk about that. Justification by grace through faith and sanctification by grace through faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain, or if perhaps I might, attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. All right, so that's the paragraph that we're going to be dealing with, and however long it takes, uh, it's going to be a blessing. So we start with profit and loss, gain and loss. Everything that was an actual gain for Paul, he has re-reckoned into the loss category. Everything that was an actual gain for Paul, he has re-reckoned into the loss category. And that's, we want to be clear, they were legitimate. They were actual gains. They were actual credentials. They were actually of a benefit to him at the time that he had them. For the wrong reasons, but nevertheless, they were gain to him. At least he reckoned them as such. But now he's re-reckoning. Re-reckoning. Okay? And this is our, this is our prerogative. And this is our blessing. We are in the image of God and we are accountable for how we think. And when we are commanded to think in a certain way and we are thinking in a different way, then what is our blessing? Our blessing is to think again, (laughs) okay? If in anything you have a different attitude, God will also show that to you. So think again. And Philippians is a thinking book over and over and over again. The verbs for thinking are just comprehensive. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's a thinking term. So think the way Christ thunk, okay? And we're commanded to think. And so rethink if you have to. If your thinking is wrong, rethink it. Get your thinking adjusted to God's thinking on an action. So this is um, was in the past an actual gain. He has re-reckoned into the loss category. This completed action, when did that happen? How long did it take him to do that? This completed action was possibly as soon as his three days of blindness in Acts 9, or at the very latest during his Arabian sojourn. Galatians chapter 1. Very quickly after his entrance into the, into the body of Christ. I believe, uh, very likely during those three days of blindness. So let's look at Acts chapter 9. I mean, how long does it take you to realize that uh, your thinking has been wrong all this time? How long does it take you to realize that? Acts chapter 9. Especially if something as uh, life-changing as uh, the Damascus Road experience, right? When, uh, when all of a sudden you see the light. And uh, when the light dawns on you and you go, oh, I haven't seen that before. <laughs> okay. This completed action was possibly as soon as his three days of blindness. So uh, we're familiar with the story in Acts 9. And usually the pericope heading, will call it the conversion of Saul. Uh, that's just kind of traditionally been the label associated with it. And, uh, and so we, we deal with that. I believe that Saul was already born again from his childhood, that he was raised in a believing home. He was raised with parents. He was raised that that loved the Word of God as an Old Testament believer, that he was saved before Jesus died on the cross. Remember in the Old Testament, they were saved looking forward to the coming Messiah. And uh, But then, as happens so often, kids, even when they're raised right, they go off to college and they come back mixed up. (laughs) <laughs> All right. In Paul's case, he uh, graduated top of his Pharisee school, and that gave him a great knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And although he had this great knowledge of Torah, uh, he was more arrogant than all the rest of them put together. And the problem with arrogance, uh, Colonel Theme used to say, arrogance cancels out intelligence, and uh, that's what happens. And uh, with all that arrogance and all that pride, uh, he felt that he had to persecute Christians. And so uh, you end up with Old Testament believers who are so full of pride that even when the Christ comes, they don't recognize him. They reject him. They hate him. And they put him to the cross, see. And so uh, this is what's happening here. And so in the book of Acts, uh, particularly in uh, chapter 7, with the stoning of Stephen, and uh, Saul is right there holding the robes while they do the dirty work. And then uh, in chapter 8, he's ravaging the church, and in chapter 9, uh, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And uh, it doesn't mention anything about the children there at that point. That makes me wonder. <laughs> you know? Um, curious, isn't it? Anyway, but the men and women can be bound and hauled off to, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, children, I guess, would be left in the synagogues or left whatever, um, separating children. That's kind of newsworthy. But in any event, um, and as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And like I say, this is oftentimes viewed as his salvation moment, but I don't think so. I think this was his repentance moment. This was his moment when, because he had a childhood salvation, you never lose your salvation. Even if you are saved as a child and then a huge enemy of, of God in you know, later years, the answer is to repent. The answer is to come back and serve God again. The answer is not, you can't get saved a second time. That's not possible because you can't lose your salvation at all, ever, right? So when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's curious to me. He doesn't say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? He says to him, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And that's the burning question, isn't it? Because clearly it was on his mind. Clearly it was on his mind before this day. Some nagging little thing in the back of his mind that these these Christians that he's persecuting, they're naming the name of Jesus of Nazareth and they're not recanting, even under imprisonment, even under torture, even when they have every reason to do so. All they have to do is deny that Jesus is the Messiah and they're they're good to go. They can come back to synagogue. And they won't. They won't stop denying that Jesus has died and risen again and that he is the Messiah. And that's bugging him. And so now he's face-to-face with Yahweh. There's no question he's face-to-face with Yahweh. The light is there. Now he's asking, who are you? And there's no reason to ask that question unless it's been bothering you. There's no reason to ask. It is the most unusual question in the world unless the testimony of the early Christians has been eating away at uh, Saul's uh, conscience, at Saul's doctrine. And so he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that's the end of the story right there. I mean, that's all he needs to say. I am Jesus. There's no other name that's been given under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the Jesus that he's persecuting, that he is not serving God. Remember, we saw that in John 16, that people would would be murdering you thinking they were serving God. And now it's just the opposite. He realizes, wait a minute, I'm murdering God's servants and I am the, the enemy so I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Notice nowhere in there does it say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nowhere in there, in fact, believe is nowhere in this chapter. Paul never pissed duos in this chapter. This is not the chapter where he receives his eternal life. This is the chapter, by the way, where he crosses from being an Old Testament saint into a New Testament saint. This is the chapter where he enters the body of Christ. Remember, before the church... You are either a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, see, or an unbeliever, right? But once you were saved, you're either a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, and that was your eternal destiny. But the body of Christ is something new. Now in the body of Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. We're one, we're one in Christ. No male or female, no bond or free, no uh, uh, Jew or Greek, it's uh, no slave or free man. It's Christianity is the ultimate for, for race and, and gender and, and economic and all this problems today hey it's all solved if you're a believer in christ we're all one and this is what happens paul uh, is going to receive the holy spirit he's going to be ushered into the church age and uh and he's going to be given his apostle gift and his apostle ministry and uh we have we see this moving forward now in verse 7 of acts 9 the men who traveled with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one hearing the voice but thinking it was thunder, not even understanding the words, actually. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And so it's kind of hard. You know, here's, here's the assassin. Here's, the, here's the, the agent that's been going to town that's going to you know, arrest everybody and bring him back to Jerusalem. And, well, not so much. <laughs> you can't see what he's doing now, right? Now he's being led by the hand and, and brought somewhere. 
And he was three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Three days. I'm sure he could have eaten. I'm sure he could have drunk. I'm sure they offered him whatever. And he refused, said no thank you. Why? What's the process here? Well, we know he's praying. We know he's praying. We're told that. And we know that he's seeing visions. We're told that as well. And uh, so uh, he neither ate nor drank for three days. It's like David, he, for seven days, when David was fasting over the, the sickness of his first of that, of that child with Bathsheba. And um, here it's three days. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, probably, probably the number one target on his arrest list. Maybe the top, I mean, if it was alphabetized, Ananias. Or if he was the leader of the church, who knows. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord calls to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Okay, he's praying. For three days he's been praying. What's he praying about? I think he's recategorizing his profit and loss statement. I think he's, uh, he's taking everything that was a gain to him and realizing this is, uh, this is going to work against me here moving forward. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So he has a vision of a guy named Ananias coming to him. So what do you think needs to happen? I think, uh, and God knows this, and so now God is telling Ananias, it's like when he tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. He's telling Ananias, go to, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and talk to Saul of Tarsus. Because he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now what happens if Ananias disobeys? <laughs> well, God's kind of in a bind now, isn't he? Because he sent the vision already and Paul's expecting this Ananias guy to come and talk to him. Okay, No, God's not in a bind. God knows. Ananias will obey. But he doesn't want to. Not at first. Okay, Needs to be encouraged. So Ananias answered, Lord, um, excuse me. (laughs) You know, it's not an immediate obedience. It's not a here I am, send me. It's not a, so Ananias, you know, picked up and went. It was, um, Lord, if I may, I I have heard from many about this man. (laughs) I just love this. makes me laugh every time I preach it. Lord, I've heard, and, and you may not have heard this, Lord, right? Maybe you weren't aware of this, but I've heard, okay? Does God know what he's doing or not? Does God ask you to do something and he's completely oblivious? Like, oh, you know, oh, my bad, I didn't know, I'm sorry. God is not stupid about what he does. He knows what he's doing. But I've heard, and I've heard from many, I'm not just me, Lord, there's a lot of folks, we, we all agree. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Okay, I mean, this guy, the legend has grown. The stories, and anytime stories get told, they get bigger and bigger. And by the time they reach Damascus, you know, Saul has got to be this this huge giant of a of a of a terror. Okay, he really wasn't. He was kind of short, and his pre- personal presence was not very impressive. But the legends have been growing. We've heard about this guy, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, how does he know that? <laughs> you know, if you're given a secret mission and a secret arrest warrant, and uh, it's not as if, you know, it gets broadcast in Damascus, but uh, the Christians already knew. And I think it's indicative of the early church and the prophets that were in those early ministries and uh, things that they were privy to. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name, notice the order, before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. 
that's the order. Paul consistently flipped it upside down. I think Paul allowed his patriotism to blind his ministry because every single town Paul ever arrived in, the first people he went to were the Jews. And yet his calling was to Gentiles, kings, sons of Israel were to come third. Anyway, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's about the suffering, okay? For my name's sake. We've got some sake classes coming up, and we're going to learn about sake. What does sake mean, okay? For Christ's sake, okay? Nowadays, for Christ's sake is kind of a vulgar, uh, it's, a, it's a blasphemous uh, um, you know, expression. But it's a biblical expression. And we're going to be oriented to it because we're going to start doing everything we do for Christ's sake. All right. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, brother. Notice that? (laughs) He doesn't say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They're already brothers. Brother Saul, you need to be brought into the church age. You're a believer, but you've got to become a church age believer. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Because the time of his fasting, the time of his grieving, the time of his reflection was complete. And so he was able to eat like David was able to eat. The baby died and he got up and washed himself and ate food and said, that season's over now. If you know what I'm talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And uh, yeah, and he clearly he's done some reflecting because look what happens. For several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God. And so obviously he has a lot of knowledge a lot of Old Testament theology, a lot of, you know, Scripture that he's had the time now to reorient and reflect and recategorize, to re-reckon, okay? To re-reckon. And Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And there it is. Now, several days he's there, and then he's going to uh, depart. He's going to spend some time in Arabia, It's not recorded in Acts, but he talks about it in Galatians 1. So we can turn over to Galatians chapter 1 and uh, plug this in to the chronology of the life of Paul. And... uh, Galatians 1.11, I would have you know, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. He was on the fast track. Not just on the fast track, he was the fast track, all right? Everybody else had to compete with Paul. He was blazing the trails. Uh, My countrymen, my contemporaries, among my countrymen. We'll talk about countrymen. We we already did when we talked about tribes and nations and language. And uh, the, the term here for countrymen is expressed in that. Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And uh, if you want to exceed in Judaism, then extreme zeal, more extreme zeal is, uh, zeal will take you places, extreme zeal will take you even more, and more extreme zeal puts you at the head of your class. And that's where uh, Saul was. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's the Damascus Road experience, was revealing his son in me, bringing him into the church age, not saving him. Saving him was calling him through grace uh, in the verse just before that. So God who set me apart even from my mother's womb, that's physical birth, and called me through his grace, that's spiritual birth. That's when he got saved as a boy. 
And then he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Are we following this? This is when he crosses over from an Old Testament saint to a New Testament saint. And it's hard. It's hard to think about it, but I challenge you. I challenge you. All right? Because this is unique in human history. It's the only time this has ever happened. It's the only time that you had a whole planet full of believers, in the sense of Old Testament believers, waiting for Messiah to come. And then a church age beginning. When, when Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit descended and uh, the church age began, that's, that's powerful. All right? And then you end up with a circumstance where you've got a whole lot of Old Testament believers that need to, they don't need to get saved a second time. That's dumb. You only get saved once. But they need to, they need to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. They need to confess Jesus as the Christ. They need to, and typically it was through the laying on of hands by the apostles. In this case, it was uh, Ananias of Damascus. But through the laying on of hands, they would then be ushered into the body of Christ and they, they would then receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? And many of them would then go through water baptism to identify with the uh, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, everything I'm describing, today we don't have to worry about that. There's nobody on the planet today that is an Old Testament believer who was saved before you know, 33 AD. Nobody's that old. Okay, So today, everybody that gets saved today is automatically filled with the Holy Spirit at salvation. Is automatically, they don't have to get a second blessing. They don't have to have somebody lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. That was only for Old Testament believers crossing into the New Testament. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, if you need more on that, we'll, we'll expand. I'll, we can do question and answer on Wednesday night and, and do more on that. So, um, God who set me apart, even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace. He was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And that's important, okay? Now we stayed in Damascus for a few days and he did some, some Jesus preaching, which we just read about. But then he realized he had some consultations to do. And it wasn't going to be with apostles before him. It was to be with Jesus personally. So I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. And returned once more to Damascus. Now, how long did that take? Well, I think uh, the three-year indicator in verse 18 is a clue. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. So whatever the combined time was between a few days in Damascus, a period of time in Arabia, and then more time in Damascus, that total, three years later, is when he went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. Cephas, of course, is the Aramaic name for Peter. And uh, I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So th- this is his background. So he had a time, he had a three-day time of blindness. Maybe it was during that time that he reclassified his gains as losses. Or if it wasn't done then, clearly, I think, it, at the very latest, it would have happened during his Arabian sojourn. That was his consultation time. That was his seminary training. That's when he uh, had to get all of his doctrine adjusted to a New Testament reality. And that's when uh, not only he took all of his Pharisee knowledge and was able to focus it on the, the uh, person of Christ. And then he was able to receive church-age doctrine on top of that. The revelation of mystery. The revelation of mystery doctrine that he then starts preaching when he returns to Damascus and Jerusalem and, and Tarsus for 10 years and then the missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. And so we have the aspects there. And I know, I, I like Galatians 1.17, the, the seminary training in, in Arabia said it wasn't flesh and blood, it was from Jesus. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Every morning you wake up and say, alright Lord, here I am and Jesus shows up and teaches you your seminary class. Wow. Okay? It's a revelation, though. It's a vision. It's not a a, uh, presence. He can't return until rapture, and he can't return physically to the earth until second advent. But he can have visions. He can have revelations, and that's what he would have. So anyway, I like it. My own pastoral call came in the deserts of Arabia, so I'm very pleased with that in... uh, I feel a kinship, as it were, because it was in Saudi Arabia for Desert Storm, or Desert Shield, first of all, and then Desert Storm. 
But um, when I came under the conviction that pastor teacher was my gift and that this was going to be my calling for the rest of my life and uh, wrote letters to Sharon and, and to Pastor Ralph and, and we explored all those, all those things. And uh, yeah, came back from the desert convinced of two things, that I was going to marry Sharon and that I was going to become a pastor. And that call happened in the deserts of Arabia. So I think that's kind of cool. All right. Let's talk about prophets, okay? Gain, kurdos, kurdos. The Greek word for prophet is kurdos, K-E-R-D-O-S. If you want to study it, there's only three places, so uh, we'll look at all three here this morning. Kurdos, K-E-R-D-O-S. That's kappa, epsilon, rho, delta, omicron, sigma, transliterated with English letters as, or the Latin alphabet is K-E-R-D-O-S. The Strong's number is 2771, where you'll find it in your Strong's Concordance. You'll also find the verb, 2770 is the Strong's number for the verb. The verb is kerdino, K-E-R-D-A-I-N-O. Kerdino is the verb. And uh, the noun only has three uses, but the verb has 17 uses. So altogether, there's 20 places in the New Testament we could look at with respect to uh, gain or profit or winning. Sometimes it's translated winning, okay? And uh, we can have some fun with that. But mostly, uh, we want to have a biblical perspective on profit because uh, we live in a, in a generation uh, whereby profit is sometimes viewed as wrong, as bad, as problematic, or as uh, evil, you know. And uh, folks get angry at prophets, and and they uh, they are what they will view as excessive prophets and whatever, um, and and they they get critical of prophets in uh, in a lot of contexts, and that's that's curious to me because uh, you know if if profit is the contrast to loss, and you don't like profit, what uh, what are we talking about here? And uh, anyway, there's there's other things involved. And we may touch on some of those, I don't know. But, uh, but let me just tell you, biblically speaking, profit is not evil. Okay? Profit is not evil. And by design, God has designed us to be productive. Okay? Profit demonstrates productivity. And productivity is what imitates God. God himself is productive. God himself accomplishes things. And when God's done with what he's done, he stops, he looks back, and he rests with a sabbath rest appreciation for all that he's done and it's very good to reflect upon what you've done is not evil and to acknowledge your prophet is not evil we'll discuss that as well all right kurdos is a gain and so it's actually the second time we've had it in philippians because back in chapter one we had it do you remember You remember Philippians 1.21? No, you don't. Well, there was a little verse there that said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. All right, now you do, all right? To die is gain. To die is kurdos. So to live as Christos, to die as kurdos, is what the verse says, okay? Which is gain, which is profit, which is, I mean, who doesn't want to go to heaven? What a, what a profit, what a promotion. We call that a promotion. It's, a, it's to our advantage, it's a whole lot better than this fallen world, let me tell you. All right? This world is dark. This world is full of sinners and evil. And, and um, in the permissive will of God, there's a lot that happens on this earth that violates His will. In heaven, no such thing. Okay? To die is gain. Uh, 3.7, of course, is our verse today uh, with respect to gain. Everything that was gained to me, I have re-reckoned as loss. These things, whatever things, those things, okay? The whatever things is all of it. And the whatever things, those things, all of them, I have counted as loss. And they were actually gained, not, not doubting that they were, not disputing that they were. Because okay? some people try to act, well, they weren't really gained anyway, so Paul didn't lose anything by throwing it away. Well, then that diminishes the whole point of, of the sacrifice, right? If it, if it really wasn't worth anything anyway, then there's no credit to, to, to tossing it. So it has to be real. And, uh, and they're called real. And but those things I have counted as loss for the sake. There's the sake, for the sake of Christ. That's Christ's sake there in verse 7. We'll get there in a moment. 
And then Titus 1.11 is the third use. When we see Titus 1.11, we've read all three uses of kurdos in the New Testament. Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And one um, eleven, and, th- and you've got to watch out for false teachers. It's a description of the overseer. And then uh, verse 10 says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Watch out for those Jewish teachers who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Sordid gain and uh, aspects there. We're going to talk about that because there's actually um, great gain that we have. So there's sordid gain. I'm going to double check that that reference because I'm, I'm not liking it here this morning. Titus 1.7 maybe? Okay, so, so 1.7 is the sordid gain and 1.11 is actual gain, not sorted. Why does it say sorted there? Anyway, there's gain. Kurdos in Titus 1.11. Now the verb kurdino, Jesus talks about kurdino um, with some literal usages, some metaphoric usages, some figurative usages, and, uh, and, and clearly we know what the figurative is about because we know what the literal is about. It's obvious. We know what it means to gain. We know what it means to go to a certain city and work for such and such a period of time and to make a profit. Okay? We know what that means. We know what that means if there's a, you know, a possibility of a great profit because the job market's better there than here. Or when I was growing up in Seattle, Washington, the, the thing t- teenagers would do is uh, they'd get out of school for the summer and then it was off to Alaska. Because you could work a summer fishery thing in Alaska and uh, make big bucks in Alaska, and then come back to Seattle for the school year, and uh, and 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 have a have a significant profit, um, you know, college money or whatever you were working on during the summer. That was the idea. Well, James four three talks about this. Talks about you know if you're going to have those kind of plans, make sure you keep it in the will of God. You know, say if the Lord wills we will go to this city. If the Lord wills, we will conduct this business. If the Lord wills, we will make this profit. Because if it's not the will of God, I don't want this profit. But if it is the will of God, then there's nothing wrong with profit. That's James 4. James 4.13. But keep in mind, Matthew 16 is the first place, and the Lord's using it here, where he talks about gaining the whole world and yet losing your soul. And the losing language is... uh, our next term that we have with the, the lost vocabulary. So both terms are here in Matthew sixteen twenty six. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in the word for life throughout this whole passage here is soul, psuche for soul. And this is, we're talking about not salvation, we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about the experiential sanctification and the ongoing and the outworking of our faith. And uh, it's not talking about earning your salvation or somehow you can deserve eternal life if you deny the world and take up your cross. No, only believers take up the cross. This is, this, the, the argument here assumes that you're already saved. And we're moving past that into issues of, uh, of growth and sanctification. So whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it. Whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man, Cardino, if he, uh, or, or Kurdos, no, Cardino, the verb, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You know, I would say if, if, if anyone wants to argue or debate with me about excessive profits, I'd say, okay, I believe in excessive profits, but the terms are set right here. The whole world, okay? That's excessive. I'll go with that. <laughs> if you own the entire planet, then I'd say that's excessive. And did, you, did it cost your soul to get that? Have you sold your soul for uh, business success, for career advancement? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
So the fact of the matter is these transactions are voluntary transactions. God loves the cheerful giver. We have to do as, uh, voluntarily. We have to do not grudgingly or under compulsion, but as a man has uh, chosen in his heart. Whatever we do joyfully. And the thing with these voluntary transactions, giving in exchange for his soul, this is a, a person who uh, made this choice and did so because he wanted to. Damaged his own soul in the process because he wanted what he wanted. Wow, okay. And there you go. And in every transaction, both parties are walking away with what they wanted. You know, H-E-B wanted my money and I walked away with my uh, whatever I just went in there and bought, okay? I walked out of there with my gallon of milk. No, I walked out of there with my drumsticks. (laughs) With nuts, caramel-flavored drumsticks. And I valued them more than the six bucks that H-E-B valued, okay? And so both, it's a win-win. Free exchange is a win-win. Because I valued the worth of the drumsticks greater than the worth of the six bucks. H-E-B decided that the six bucks was greater in value because whatever they paid for it was less than six bucks. So it was, you see the difference in value? Value is from the perspective of the person that is purchasing. Anyway, we'll discuss that. Some of these things are just lost today and they, they should be fundamental. So what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the amazing thing about it is God who designed us volitional, God designed us to make choices. God honors those choices. God either rewards or judges the volition that we express. Positive volition, negative volition. And when we make a free exchange, even in negative volition, God will honor that by disciplining us as the loving Father who is going to teach His children to make better choices next time. All right? Buyer's remorse is a great teacher. And, uh, you know, you just can't, you can't, uh, with your kids and anyone else, you just can't undo something or give them their money back or whatever. Buyer's remorse is great. You learn a lot by buying something you wish you hadn't have bought. And then you learn better next time. Okay? All right. Uh, next, uh, Matthew, staying Matthew, chapter 25, there's a whole string of these in Matthew 25. This is in the Mount Olivet Discourse, a lot of eschatology here. And uh, in this context, he says, it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Okay? They're not equal. Notice that? Each according to his own ability. Because there's different capacities. And some had greater capacity and some had less capacity but within their capacity they were entrusted with money each according to his own ability and he went on his journey and immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents so he conducted business he's given money and whatever over whatever length of time he took the five and he had five more when he was done That's gain. That's profit. That's not evil. And uh, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents, he cardinoed two more. He gained two more. And he increased two more. See, it takes money to make money. And there's principles at work because it's a free exchange. And so that money just can't sit there and do nothing. That money has to be put to some productive productive use. And so it's spent. What's it spent on? Something that's a gain. And then that is recouped. And then that is spent. And what is that spent on? And that is a gain. And then that is recouped. And then what is that spent on? Say, how does reinvestment work? How does, how does all this work? Okay? Anyway. This, these are where all the concepts came from, I'm telling you. All right? And uh, when people tell me that capitalism is not biblical, I say, where do you think they learned capitalism? <laughs> they, were, they were deriving temporal life principles from spiritual life principles that were coming out of the Bible. 
And in the Middle Ages, they were, they were debating back and forth and they were discussing, is, is interest valid and is usury the sin? Just like is drunkenness the sin, but drinking in moderation is valid. And so they, they explored these things and they balanced these things out. And they came to biblical conclusions that usury is the sin, but interest is legitimate. And, and that savings is biblical. And that increase is absolutely biblical. That Jesus praises interest, but not usury. All right? And so Catholic theologians in the Middle Ages, this is before the Reformation even. Catholic theologians before, uh, during the Middle Ages, were able to resolve the conundrum of interest versus usury. Something that uh, the Jews couldn't do and something that the Quran couldn't do. Muslims today will not, are, are totally against interest in the Quran and in, in, in Islamic practice. And Jewish people today are totally, uh, under the law, they can't charge interest from themselves, but they can, they can it's okay to, to soak the Gentiles. All right. But there's uh, different things there. But Christianity, by the way, when Christianity realized that in God's design, that you can delay gratification and that you can pool money and that you can use money instead of just spending it on yourself and gratifying yourself, you can actually invest it together with other people for a greater return down the road. They got it from this text right here and they transformed the world, okay? Because Western civilization used biblical principles and capitalism uh, took more people out of uh, slavery than anything else. All right. Anyway, don't get me on that. There's a whole topic on that. So the five got five, the two got two, the one. What did the one do? He buried it. Yeah. He who received the one talent went away. Now, automatically we know that he's not the smartest guy in the world because his, what's his capacity? He's got the smallest of the capacities. Okay. Some people are smarter than others, and some people are better business people than others, and some people just, we're all different, okay? And some people are suited to do this, and others aren't, okay? But the one who uh, received the one talent, he went away and he dug a hole, and he hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them, and the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Because he knows he's accountable. He knows it's not his money. He knows that he's, he's, he's doing business with somebody else's money. And if you're, if you're renting, if you're leasing, if you're contracting, if you're whatever you're doing, it's not yours. It's somebody else's. You're just the agent. And, uh, and so you're accountable I have gained five more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So this whole thing was, a, was an audition. It was an internship audition. And now that he's returned the five talents, now it's ten. The ten belong to the master, but the master is giving them to the one who has ten and hiring him for the joy of your master as it's described there. And we believe this is eschatological coming to the millennial kingdom and the Jewish reward that they can expect in the millennial kingdom. Also, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained, Cardino, two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so again, crossing into the millennial kingdom when the master returns as the the idea there. Now we, we adapt this for our purposes. When, when a believer dies and goes to heaven, we like to think that they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, you know, it's the first thing they hear when they're face to face with Jesus Christ. Uh, but that is simply an extrapolation based on this text, uh, adapting a Jewish application for ours. I don't have any problem with that. But then the third guy, the one also who had received the one talent. Now he's just as accountable he has to come up, he has to report, he has to give an account. Master. And now he starts with a song and a dance. So you know this is not good, right? I knew you to be a hard man. 
reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. What's that? Where's this going? This is, this is, a, this is a rehearsed spiel that he's been, he's been dreading this day, actually. He's been rehearsing this. What is this about? I knew you to be a hard man. Did, did any of the other two guys talk about the master's character? Did any of the other two guys talk about the master at all? I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. Now that right there is covetousness. That right there is jealousy. That's envy. That's, uh, that's, the, that's the philosophy that feeds labor unions. Why are you reaping? You didn't sow. We did all the sowing. We did all the work. We did all the labor. Who do you think you are? Reaping where you did not sow. Well, stop. Who do you think you are? Sowing a field that wasn't yours. Working in a business that wasn't yours. Investing capital that wasn't yours. Quit griping. <laughs> you know, you were entrusted to do a job. Did you do the job? Were you paid to do a job? So, uh, he is not a hard man, and there's nothing unfair about him reaping where he did not sow. He could have sown, but he gave you the, the money to do it. So thank God that you had the employment you had. How about that? You know, if he had your attitude with respect to money, he wouldn't have started that business. He would have just taken all his wealth and used it for self-gratification. All right. Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. Really. (laughs) Kind of like Adam and Eve. Covering with fig leaves, hiding. You know, when you're walking in prolonged carnality and you know there's accountability, you you put it off, you've you've tried to not think about it, but you can't help but think about it. And now here he is. So I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. Why did you do that? See, if there's the off chance that the master doesn't come back, who knows where that money is, (laughs) right? But if he does business with it, then there's records. Everybody knows where the money is. They know where where it was spent, what it was spent on, what the return is. So there's no records. He went and buried it. So the master, so uh, see, uh, you have what is yours. So he just gives him back. Here's your one talent back. He didn't want one talent back. Where's the gain? Where's the gain? Instead, he's got a loss. He lost a talent. Should have at least gained a talent. Should have at least gained some interest, if nothing else. And so these are the opportunity losses because of the wicked, lazy slave. The non-productive employee is costing the, the uh, business owner because he didn't return two talents. This business owner is out a talent. He's lost a talent. Because he didn't gain a talent. All right? So his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. You knew that. You knew that I'm the owner and you're the worker. You knew the creator creature distinction. You knew the chain of command. You knew what was expected. You should have at least put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. And that's the verse right there that solved it for, the, the, uh, for Thomas Aquinas and a lot of the other theologians in the Middle Ages. So therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten. So this loser doesn't even get to keep the one. He's not going to get a job. <laughs> he failed his... Uh, he failed his, uh, what do you call that, internship, audition. And now the guy that had 10 actually has 11 when he enters into his, uh, the joy of his master. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. The rich get richer. Don't grumble about that. Get richer. <laughs> 
get spiritually richer. And the poor get poorer. Don't grumble about that. Be spiritually richer. Everyone who has more shall be given. He will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this teaching. And uh, the hour just flew by, Father. But I thank you for profit and loss. I thank you for Paul's perspective. And we're going to learn from these things here in Philippians 3 and Philippians 4. We're going to learn what the dynamic is between spiritual wealth and earthly wealth. And I pray, Father, that we'll be properly oriented to both, Father, so we can conduct ourselves honorably in, in the secular world. But more than that, we, Father, we, first and foremost, we want to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness so that all these things can be then added unto us. Thank you, Father, for all you do. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.